Well, representatives of Ukraine and Russia met in Istanbul and Turkey today for the first of two days of talks. There were some stuff on the table. Ukraine proposed accepting neutral status in exchange for security guarantees, meaning it would not join military alliances or host military bases. Moscow promised to scale back its attacks on Kyiv in order to boost mutual trust at those very talks. As Moscow says, to create the right conditions for future negotiations and reaching the final aim of signing a peace deal with Ukraine. Well, President Joe Biden, for one, isn't convinced. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. There seems to be a consensus that uh, let's just see what they have to offer. We'll find out what they do. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to keep strong the sanctions. We're going to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with their capacity to defend themselves. And we're going to continue to keep a close eye on what's going on. And my next guest would say that actions speak louder than words as well. So what is happening on the ground in Ukraine and what could it mean for those talks? Joining me now is retired Major General David Fraser, former commander of NATO Regional Command South in Afghanistan. Welcome to the show. Thank good to be with you. It's always interesting, of course, from an out, from from any perspective to see different messaging coming out of out of the Russian military, because one never quite knows what to make of it. So we've now seen uh, at least noise about a different tactic, maybe withdrawing a bit from the Kiev region. Uh, how do you see it? Well, first of all, we shouldn't believe what the Russians say. So time will tell. However, the situation on the ground is that the Russian uh, campaign has come to a complete stall. They have gone from offense to digging in and becoming defensive, and whereas the Ukrainians are now going on the offense. And we are now actually having what I would call the preliminary discussions of a meaningful uh, dialogue, which will lead to a settlement. So really, I mean, this is a very different conversation than the one we were having even a few weeks ago when it looked like this could drag on for a very long time and into some sort of very destructive stalemate. I think so. I mean, you know, Russia will continue to press, but um, quite frankly, the fundamentals have changed and the momentum has gone into the Ukrainian side, where now that they are actually on the offense, uh, Russia is having a hell of a time trying to sustain their operations. They have taken astronomical uh, losses and whatnot, but uh, the situation has completely changed and you know, I'm not saying that it's going to look any better in the days and weeks to come, but I think there has been a shift in the momentum. You know, there were a lot of, obviously, a lot of calls to provide more air uh, security for the Ukrainians. It seems to have, I mean, the destruction and the loss of life and the targeting of civilians obviously has continued and the scenes from that are, are horrific. But the Ukrainian military seems to have managed to continue to fight back, even though it didn't have this kind of vital air air support. The Ukrainians have, I think, surprised the world. It's kind of the tale of two cities. And the original assessment was people thought the Russians would have done better and the Ukrainians not so much. The reality has been the reverse. And including uh, Russia never established air superiority. Ukrainians have maintained some air capability. And notwithstanding their desire for a no-fly zone, they continue to inflict damage on the Russians who cannot fly without impunity. Uh, This actually has been a Ukrainian um, uh, 
uh, success story. And that's an that raises an interesting point because obviously their tactics, and I'm not a military person, but their tactics worked. Whatever they and, and were the, do you think those were tactics that were laid out in advance, knowing what might be coming their way? Well, I think the West has to take some credit uh, in what they have done to rearm and train the Ukrainians. But let's just let's call a spade a shovel. It was the Ukrainian will and their leadership of their defense forces and their of their people that have made the difference here, which has you know counterposed that against poor leadership and no will of the Russian soldier. Uh, which has made the difference of where we are talking to about uh, today on the 29th. I mean, you understand all these things fundamentally. Where has the Russian military, the much vaunted for many years Russian military, gone so drastically wrong fighting a smaller and ostensibly, we thought, weaker neighbor? Fundamentally, they put too much emphasis on their equipment, not enough emphasis on training of the basic conscript soldier and over uh, estimated their value and capability of their general staff to do, to do what I would call combined arms um, um, operations juxtaposed against the Ukrainians who understood um, small party tasks and small unit tasks and were able to be far more agile in fighting a, a numerically superior force, but being able to the point where the numerically superior force couldn't uh, engage them. And in your perception, this is clearly what's driven Russia to try. And when we think, do you think they're stalling for time when they talk about withdrawals? Or it seems strange to me that they would speak publicly or announce publicly what they might be thinking of doing. It doesn't seem like a, it seems like it's a stall tactic more than uh, a declaration of, of, of actually of actual intent. The difference this week from last week is that the Russians are now talking. And <clears throat> even their assertion of, of changing their tactics, where they're not going to do as much attacks in Kiev, They've run out of steam. They've run out of steam uh, to supply their forces to press the attack. Uh, they've also indicated that they may not go and attack as much in the north, but they will go after the east, which is what I would have assessed as their original objectives for Donbass and the land bridge between Crimea and back to Russia. I think the Russians' original plan is what they're falling back onto because they're more... Uh, audacious plan has been an unmitigated disaster, which was to take all of Ukraine and then look at the rest of you know parts of NATO. I suppose once an army runs out of steam, uh, there's not much you can do, no matter how much you're you're trying to will it not to be so. If you're Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin did not understand there was something called a culminating point. Every army, every battle has a culminating point where no matter how much you want to do, uh, your troops and resources just absolutely have gone past the point of capability. And I think, I'm not saying we're there yet with the Russian army, but we are, we are certainly seeing indications that the Russian army is about hit the culminating point at this moment in time with all their operations inside Ukraine. What does a culminating point look like? 
<laughs> everyone is different. Uh, it is a function of, and it's, it's, it's a three-dimensional type of discussion that you talk about will of your soldiers, uh, resources, politics, economic, and I think what the Russians are, are facing right now, they're reaching, if not have reached, the culminating point where their soldiers no longer have the will, the generals don't have the capability, their economy is, in, is if it's not in shattered, close to being in shatters, they don't have the capability to supply and resupply their troops. Um, most of the, of the Russian machinery is now focused on trying to just to maintain what they already have here. They, they are reaching the point where they can't do anything more. I'm speaking with retired Major General David Fraser, former commander of NATO's Regional Command South in Afghanistan. We're talking about the military situation on the ground in Ukraine and uh, words today from Russia, at least, that it is changing its tactics, at least backing away from Kiev and concentrating on other parts of the country. Not that we've seen that unfold just yet and why that may be. When we come back, a bit more about how it is that a David can beat a Goliath and whether we're seeing more of it. Is it more difficult to fight wars these days against smaller powers. We'll be right back. I'm back with retired Major General David Fraser, former commander of NATO Regional Command South in Afghanistan. We've been talking about the military situation on the ground in Ukraine and just how effective the Ukrainians have been at fighting back. In fact, pushing the Russian military to a point where it looks like they won't be able to make any of the kind of progress they were hoping to make and are having to reassess uh, their objectives. You talked a bit earlier about the land bridge, and this is kind of an important thing because even that would be uh, difficult for Ukraine to live with because it would cut cut off a lot of their access to the sea, which is vital for them. Um, if if the Russians start to move away from the north and at least stop attacking in the north, does that not allow the Ukrainians to then focus all their energy in trying to repel any other advances in, in the south? They could. I think for Ukraine that they want to make sure that the Russians disengage completely from the west side of the river, including Kiev, that they disengage from uh, the territory in the north that they've incurred on. I think the Donbass region, as much as the Ukrainians don't like it, is one of those things that you might have to give up. And the, and the land bridge from uh, Crimea all the way back to Russia is going to be a discussion point. And particularly within that discussion point will be Maripol, which is the city that has provided the Ukrainian spirit of defiance, which has not yet given up the fight against the Russians. So this is, becomes the political discussion point is what do you do with that land bridge when you've got Maripol that won't give up? Well, precisely, I guess that therein lies. It's, it's one thing to win, win the territory. It's another thing to hold the territory. Well, the Russians have now accepted or, or are going to have to accept an insurgency that's going to last for decades because the Ukrainian people, notwithstanding if they're Russian speaking or not, are not happy with the Russians, with what they've done. And this is where, you know, whatever gains that Russia has made will come at a tremendous cost of bleeding their country for years to come. Uh, because of what they've done. One of the interesting things that was mentioned earlier by a former Afghanistan, Canadian soldier in Afghanistan, was just how careful that they were over the years to try to avoid civilian casualties. And he was talking about how jarring it was to be in Kyiv, where clearly Russia is doing nothing to avoid civilian casualties. Has that aspect of this war surprised you in any way? 
It hasn't surprised me. It has absolutely disgusted me that the Russians' main effort has been the civilian population and the purposeful targeting of civilians uh, with the objective of trying to, A, kill them, force them out into the open, kill them again, and force the Ukrainian leadership to a uh, peace table to try to uh, settle on the terms of the Russians. But the Ukrainians have had none of it including the civilians who are adversely affected in places like Maripol. What I found interesting too, is that even on the ground, there's still short supplies. They don't have the medical supplies they need. They've been doing a lot of this uh, fighting back almost organically. They've just come together to do it. They, a lot of the supplies that they're hoping to get still haven't arrived there yet. Uh, what does that tell you about, about the capacity they have to fight back? Ukraine has come together as a nation to supply to supply their um, to supply their uh, forces on what they need for this fight, and this fight is now a national fight, and they're not going to give up. And the interesting thing is that the Ukrainian forces probably have more tanks today than they did at the beginning of the war by picking up Russian equipment that was left on the battlefield. And they will continue to fight with everything they have in their in their arsenal, including their spirit, to defeat the Russians on every engagement. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about history here. Of course, we think back. I remember, I remember when I was in Afghanistan, you could still see the remnants of Soviet uh, machinery scattered. Um, you were in Afghanistan, obviously. How much more challenging has it become for a country like, for a big country like Russia to try and defeat a smaller country like Ukraine, given modern technology, given all the different um, things that smaller militaries or smaller forces now have at their disposal to counterattack? Well, Russia and Putin completely overestimated their own capability and underestimated the capability of the Ukrainians. And because of all that, it has actually demonstrated to NATO just how capable the NATO is as a collective when you compare one country against uh, Russia, what a collective against Russia would be. And I would think by extension, it sends a, a strong message off to China. If they had any aspirations, they should um, seriously consider those compared to what uh, Russia is now facing with uh, just one country called Ukraine. One of the things I, that, that I was thinking about over the weekend, it was brought up elsewhere, was that someone could p- said, this is Vladimir Putin's Afghanistan. And then I really, then you think about it, because they've already lost more soldiers, allegedly, in, in Ukraine than they did in Afghanistan over that long, long fight. Uh, but it feels like this has happened really, really fast. Uh, are you surprised at all about just how quickly this all went so wrong for Russia? Uh, I am surprised, because in the span of just over a month, they've lost seven generals, more soldiers killed and wounded than they had in 10 years in Afghanistan. This is a ca- catastrophe of, of national proportions. What happens now in terms of NATO and, and our assessments of the Russian military threat? Where does this go? What happens to one's perception of a military when it, when it seems to uh, do this badly uh, when, the, when the chips are down? Well, I don't think uh, NATO needs to rest on its laurels that uh, we've done serious damage to Russia, because what this will force Russia to do and Putin is to regroup and to become even more dangerous than they were before. But it does it does demonstrate to us that we have been far too um, 
complacent in the last uh, decades with peace that there are people out there who still want to do things uh, like Putin and we need to defend our democracies and not just take them for granted. So, so in other words, the Russian threat, this will be a, a lesson learned for Russia, not necessarily a sign of, 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 a, of a dwindling military power. Uh, Russia will want to redeem themselves even more today than ever before. And Putin is a, a student of history, and he always was very upset by how Russia, the Soviet Union, was defeated, and he was trying to rebuild it. But now he will want even more to rebuild it, but also to redeem uh, his own image and his credibility. What do you think the next month looks like now, given how the last month has looked? It's, you know, it's hard to speculate, but I think we'll see Russia more entrenched, uh, more deep strikes in the West and more uh, negotiations to try to figure out how to resolve this thing and more uh, Ukrainian attacks. Major General David Fraser, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Ben, thank you.